Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield Approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield Approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. But here's the crucial part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, November 5th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and joining me in the studio, as always, is certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, you have a good weekend? I did. I went to a wedding in North Carolina, and there were no cell service, no internet, no nothing. It was in the middle of the mountains, and it was really weird to unplug. So you were disconnected, as they say. I like as much as I ever have been. That's that's a foreign feeling. I, I can't even remember the last time uh, I, I was in such a in such a position. Man, I tell you, this, these days I don't even understand how you go for like an hour without uh, checking your phone. It's a bad habit. I got to get out of it, man. Yeah, you should try try doing it for a weekend sometime. <laughs> well, on today's show, we're going to talk more earnings. Of course, uh, we're going to talk about some changes, some IRA changes that you need to be aware of, uh, some interesting wages and salaries data. We'll tap into Twitter. Uh, we'll have one to watch for you, and we're going to start the week uh, with Uncle Warren. Uh, his his latest investment in the payment space. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway earnings came out over the weekend as well. So, a lot to talk about, uh, really, with Berkshire Hathaway. And let's just go ahead and get started first and foremost with this uh, Berkshire buying into fintech. Because, Matt, this was uh, something that I don't think a lot of us were really expecting, but it's also not terribly surprising. I mean, he likes investing in those market opportunities and and I think more than anything the the most interesting part was just the companies he decided to invest in right right well just to be clear first of all this wasn't initiated by Warren Buffett himself he doesn't understand these companies well enough by any stretch to make an investment in them <laughs> this was by Todd Combs who's one of his two main stock pickers and he's the, definitely the more more techie of the two um but any uh, that Buffett gives him a stamp of approval, so we can consider it a you know Warren Buffett investment. Sure. Um, yeah, the two companies they were both they're both foreign companies. Uh, there's uh, Paytm, which is an Indian mobile payments company, or, and um, Stoneco, which is in Brazil. And at first glance, these might sound kind of weird. Um, like, why would Berkshire be looking at some foreign fintech companies? But they do both have a bunch of Berkshire-like qualities. For, first and foremost, they are market leaders in their economies. They both have big market shares. They're both very well known in their local markets. So they do have that going for them. It's like how Berkshire invests in Coca-Cola because it's the leading, you know, soft drink provider. Same same idea there. Um just on a more fintechy and rapidly growing scale. Right. Um and only one of them, uh Stoneco is the is the only public one out of the two, I believe. Um, and these are both relatively small investments for Berkshire, uh, three hundred million a pop, which sounds pretty big, but not when you're talking about a half trillion dollar company. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm glad to see Berkshire finally putting more of its cash to work in kind of outside the box ways. They've had a real issue kind of building up cash. They still have more than a hundred billion dollars 
after spending some of their money on a bunch of new stock investments and things like that. So I'm really excited that they're finding ways to put their money to work in ways that could actually move end up moving the needle if these companies prove really successful. Yeah, I mean, it's no secret. We obviously love these payment companies all over the world. I mean, plenty of opportunity out there. And he even he noted, payments are a huge deal worldwide, is what he said. Uh, and this, uh, you know, this he, they already own, Berkshire already owns uh, stakes in Visa, MasterCard, and American Express. So, uh, it, it's neat to see them get some of these smaller uh, firms in there that are a bit more based on uh, technology, like you said, yeah, definitely a little bit more difficult to understand. But you know, I think this is also really a testament to the kind of team that he's building there at Berkshire Hathaway, and uh, I think investors need to feel really good about that. Now, when we talk about Berkshire Hathaway, uh, I wanted to mention a little bit about just the earnings that came out over the weekend for them because it was generally speaking a pretty uh, good quarter. They saw a nice bump in operating income there. Uh, it did seem like the uh, the underwriting insurance underwriting profit. Saw a nice boost versus last year, and I think uh, there were some uh, there were some uh, natural disasters last year that that hit them on that line, of course. Uh, but but another quarter of big share repurchases for Berkshire Hathaway as well, wasn't it? Well, this is the first time they've been allowed to repurchase shares under the new plan that allows Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger to pretty much buy back shares whenever they both agree it's a good time. Um, Berkshire bought back nine hundred twenty eight billion dollars worth of shares this quarter. Which sounds like a lot, but the takeaway here is not that this is a real needle-moving thing. Like I said, Berkshire's a half-trillion-dollar company. Buying back less than a billion dollars worth of stock isn't really anything to get that excited over. But the takeaway is that the new buyback policy that they says that they can only buy it when Buffett and Munger both agree that the stock is trading at a substantial discount to its intrinsic value. So the takeaway here is that Buffett really considers Berkshire cheap at the current levels. Yep. And I think right now it's at around uh, 1.4, 1.5 times book, right? Yeah, which is actually pretty low for Berkshire. Um, Berkshire kind of, if you look at the history, kind of oscillates between one and two times book. So, it's not that expensive in a historic contest context. Yeah, and that the 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 former hurdle that they that benchmark that they had given themselves was 1.2 times book, uh, which seemed very reasonable, but uh, by the same token, I don't have any problem with them lifting that benchmark and just saying essentially, hey, we'll just do it when we feel like it makes sense because that's ultimately what they're doing. Uh, they've they've got a pretty good <laughs> track record so far, so I think we can trust them. Um, I, I I do wonder uh, how. How some shareholders may feel about that versus dividends. I mean, certainly dividends are are something that they're going to hear more and more about as time goes on. I think so. I wonder if that's something they're going to uh, feel a little bit more pressure to uh, to cave into at some point. But uh, haven't really haven't really gotten any sense of of anything like that in regard to dividends yet. Have Have you uh, noticed anything? Do you have any any feelings there? Well, as the cash was starting to build up, Warren Buffett was kind of, he, for the first time ever, I think, mentioned dividends as a real possibility. And then he kind of walked it back over the next few quarters. And his attitude is pretty much, say, if you want a 3% dividend from the stock, just just sell 3% of your shares every year. <laughs> he said, trust me to do what I will with the profits. And if you want income off Berkshire, just start gradually selling your stock that way. It's a fair and point. I, it's tough to argue with it. I mean, I... I I'm a financial planner, and I trust my money with Warren Buffett. So, <laughs> I trust him to make better, the best decisions with 
with Berkshire's income. Well, if he's good enough for you, he's good enough for me. He should be good enough for all of our listeners. That's the takeaway. Uh, okay, let's talk about these IRA changes, because I thought this was pretty neat. I was also a little bit taken back by the fact that this is the first increase to the annual contribution limit since 2013. Uh, but you published a nice article here. We'll get that out to our listeners. Uh, talk to us a little bit about this uh, this IRA increasing the limit on contributions for 2019. Yeah, so the IRS increases contributions or looks at them every year for things like IRAs, 401ks, and other types of retirement vehicles. For IRAs, it's a pretty big jump. This is almost a 10% jump from $5,500 a year as the standard maximum contribution to $6,000. The reason being, they adjust this upward with inflation over time, but can only do it in $500 increments. So for, say, a 401k where the maximum was $18,500, a $500 jump isn't that hard to come by when you're talking about inflation. But with an IRA, that's like almost a 10% jump, and it takes a little bit of time before we get 10% inflation. Hopefully, if we're getting 10% inflation a year, we're, we have other problems in the IRA limit. <laughs> but this is a big deal for retirement savers because it means that anyone who uses an IRA as their primary retirement savings vehicle has the potential to set aside an additional almost 10% a year for their retirement. Most people with IRAs, unlike 401ks, max out their contributions every year. I think the average is right around 5000 as an annual contribution, and the maximum was 5500 So it's fair to say that the majority of people with IRAs come close to at least maxing out their contribution. So this is good news in the kind of pending retirement crisis that you keep hearing about, that the, the average American will be able to set aside a little more for their retirement if they choose to do so. Well, that's always good news. And of course, we encourage anyone and everyone out there to start saving for retirement, no matter your age. Uh, you can't start soon enough. And we'll make sure to get that uh, article tweeted out there on the industry-focused Twitter feed for you, Matt. Now, uh, we also saw some news here that wages and salaries uh, this this uh, recent quarter here jumped by 3.1%. And the reason why this seemed noteworthy to me, it's the highest level in a decade. And we talked a lot about uh, over over really the past several years as unemployment has started recovering, that wages always seem to be a little bit of a point of weakness there. It, while, while jobs were coming back around, wages weren't necessarily uh, moving uh, as, as much as someone would want to see. It, it appears, though, now that uh, we have seen at least some kind of a jump there. Um, what's your take on that? Is that something that's sustainable? Is that something that's going to play out uh, in in a good way on the economy, or or what? Well, it's definitely sustainable. But from an economic standpoint, you want to pay attention to what's called real wage growth. That is, are wages growing at least as fast as inflation? Yep. Uh, just to kind of put it in context, if your your salary goes up by two percent, but it costs you two percent more to you know, pay for your mortgage or pay for your rent, pay for your groceries, etc. You really aren't making any more money. But on the other hand, if wages are going up 3.1% like we just learned, and inflation is rising at about 2%, then your purchasing power is rising over time. And that's what we really want to see. That means everybody's collective standard of living is going up over time. So yes, wage growth is excellent, highest number in 10 years, but pay attention to inflation, especially as we kind of go on this rate tightening cycle and the Fed's 
kind of monitoring the economy like they are right now to see what we should what the next move is. Yeah, that inflation lesson is a really good one. You know, we talked about it with uh, some of our full school classes. We'll we'll meet with Girl Scout troops or classes. You know, kids around 10, 11, 12 years old, and give them some ideas as to how inflation works. And and you know, we talk about it from the perspective of having your money in a piggy bank versus having it in a bank account versus having it in an investment account. And you can see over time, obviously. Your money is going to be very safe sitting there in the piggy bank, but over long periods of time, that inflation takes hold and actually erodes that value of that money in the piggy bank. So you know the piggy bank is safe, but it actually is it's kind of hurting you there because you're not keeping up with inflation. So uh, that that was the lesson that really uh, got a lot of their attention there. And, and once you can start understanding how that works and how how it. Uh, uh, how it really works over long periods of time. I, I think it really helps justify the case for uh, not only investing, but really investing the way we do here and taking that longer, longer uh, time approach there. And it also seems as if it's a good point to remind all of our listeners that support for industry focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. And let's talk about buying a home for a minute, because Matt, you've bought a home, I've bought a home, bought a couple of homes. It's not the most enjoyable process in the world. Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home these days. It's causing a lot of anxiety with folks. And while our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that, they're calling it the power buying process. And here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new, exclusive Rate Shield approval. First, they'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. Now, here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. And it's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Okay, Matt, let's dive into earnings palooza uh, it just keeps on coming, man. I tell you, we've got more companies reporting this week. We had a lot of companies that reported last week. And uh, let's go ahead and kick it off here talking about MasterCard. Tell me what you saw for their most recent quarter. Well, it was good. The stock popped right after the earnings, so you know everybody liked what they saw. Um, earnings were up by 33% year over year, revenue grew by 15%. Um, so, Anyone who thinks companies like Visa and MasterCard are maxed out, this proved them wrong once again. <laughs> I'm maxed out. I like that. You probably didn't even mean <laughs> no to pun do intended. that. <laughs> but the things that really were encouraging to me were one, cross border transactions, meaning the international revenues were up by 17%, which was the strongest of their main areas of growth. So that was very encouraging. And not only that, but their margins are getting better. Their expenses only went up 11%, while their revenues went up by 15%. And as we've said many times, anytime your revenue is growing faster than your expenses is a very good thing. Um, MasterCard's margins were higher by over two percentage points. Um, And the other really big thing that stood out to me was the kind of aggressive buyback that they're using. I know everyone's buying back stock right now 
and it's kind of the buzzword of the day given the tax reform savings. But MasterCard not only bought back $1.2 billion worth of stock in the third quarter alone, they came out with their earnings report and said, we took advantage of this big market correction in October. In the first 25 days of October, they bought over th- almost $360 million more on top of that $1.2 billion. Wow. So it's really nice to see them being proactive and saying, we took advantage because we thought our stock was dirt cheap in the beginning of October, so we bought a lot more. Well, as a Mastercard shareholder, I like everything you just said there. So let's uh, <laughs> let's let's keep it going in that direction. There, uh, take a look here real quick at Fiserv and uh, Fiserv. You know, this is an interesting business. I think it flies under the radar for a lot of people, but it's a really good business. Uh, because it is the company that provides the software for a lot of these smaller financial institutions, smaller banks and, and whatnot. They provide the software for these banks to get their work done, the ledgers, the payments, and, and, and whatnot. So, uh, again, it's, it's a good business. The stock is having a decent year so far. It's pulled back a little bit here, but um, it obviously is benefiting from the growth in electronic payments. Uh, generally speaking, from a business perspective, they benefit from switching costs. Banks don't typically like to switch operating systems very often. That's a, a pretty uh, a pretty big undertaking. And so, really, what this means is, uh, Fiserv is is a partner that grows with these banks and and continues to offer more services. And and what this ultimately does is gives Fiserv a little bit of pricing power as time goes on. And we'll see them ex- exercise that here and there. But but generally speaking, you know, you're looking at a business that's going to continue to grow around four or five percent or Organic growth, uh, but they really do a good job of bringing it down to the bottom line. And uh, when you talk about those share repurchases, if we look at their share count going back to 2013 to today, uh, they have brought that share count down 22% in that period of time. So uh, they continue to do a really good job in buying back shares and helping realize value for shareholders. Uh, you know, it's not something that's going to sit there and double overnight, but I think it's going to be a nice slow grower for uh, folks looking for, uh, you know, some financial exposure there. Uh, and let's talk about Paycom as well, Matt. You went through their quarter. What'd you find? Um, more good things. <laughs> Revenue and earnings were both up by uh, 32 and 33 percent, respectively. Um, the reason I love Paycom, and they just announced that recurring revenue it now makes up 98% of their total. Um, if you're not familiar, Paycom's the online um, the payroll processing software company. Um, 98% recurring revenue is a pretty nice moat. Um, this is a service that companies need. Um, businesses need to process payroll. So this is a great recurring revenue stream. It's growing at, like I said, a 33% year-over-year clip right now. Um, and they're not buying back shares very aggressively. They said they bought back about 30,000 shares, which is you know a drop in the bucket. But they're plowing all their money back into growth, which is exactly what they should be doing. Um, if you can have 98% of your revenue be recurring and grow that at the same rate for another few years, you're they're going to be in really good shape. Yeah, recurring revenue is a beautiful thing. Uh, we'll wrap it up real quick with Markel, uh, another one of our foolish favorites here. We've talked about this business for many, many years, and it's our baby Berkshire, as we like to call it. Um, but another uh, very good quarter for the company. And we talk about the three main drivers of the business uh, in the insurance underwriting, and they uh, stood at $4.5 billion in insurance uh, underwriting this uh, quarter, $4.5 billion up. For the first nine months of the year, versus 4.1 billion a year ago, uh, and we also talk about their 
uh, investment income, which was up to $320 million from $304 million a year ago. And then the Markel Venture side of the business, which is that's their, their investments in these smaller businesses, and they take meaningful stakes in these businesses. And um, I think they have somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 or 18 in the portfolio now, but uh, that profitability, they brought in $1.4 billion in revenue on the Markel Venture side versus $933 million a year ago for the first nine months of the year. Uh, so, seeing some very good performance there in the Markel Venture side of the business as well, um, it, it, they just keep on doing a lot of the same things here. Just running a smart business and um, you know, co-CEO there, Tom Gaynor. Uh, he's he's a, uh, a leader we like. We've had a chance to speak with him a number of times. And uh, so, as a Markel shareholder myself, I'm happy to see that they're doing what they're doing. And uh, I think shareholders should remain very uh, encouraged about where this business is headed. Let's tap into Twitter this week. We had some questions that we wanted to get to here. And so, uh, first one here is coming from at Marer Powerin. Uh, Matt asks, why in the light of the Equifax breach would it be a good idea for everyone to have their banking information shared? It sounds like the Super FICO, and I think he means the Ultra FICO that we're talking about, uh, only benefits a small number of people, yet everyone will have their data shared potentially without consent or consequence. Matt, you wanted to clarify a few things uh, in regard to this question, right? Yes. um, It's a good question, but I... When I spoke with the FICO people at the Money 2020 conference a couple weeks ago, they really clarified this because that was one of my first questions that I asked them is, I don't want you know everybody having my bank account information on top of my credit cards and things like that. Yeah. Um, so, there's two kind of points I wanted to clarify there. One, the, your banking information will not be added to your credit report. This is not going to be part of your three-bureau credit report that you know people can access, that you can access, that Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion maintain. So your bank information will not become a component of your credit report. Two, you have to opt in to individual lenders for the Ultra FICO program. In other words, if I'm applying at a certain lender and my credit score is a little too low for the loan or whatever other product I want, I can say, okay, here's my bank account information, run my Ultra FICO score or however the, the model works. But it's an opt-in with an individual lender. So it's not that everybody is going to have your bank information. So it's a little more legwork on the process of the consumer because your information isn't really just out there for anybody to access through your credit report. But it is kind of nice in the interest of data security, as you mentioned, to have the ability to give your bank account information or not give it to any lender you're applying to. Yeah, that's key. I think have the control is the key there, and it seems like uh, the consumer at least will have that um, option, and that's important. And then that leads to this next tweet I wanted to read off from at T Springs Eleven. This is Troy. He was actually an intern with us uh, here at the Fool. Troy uh, says, I love the Ultra FICO concept. I wasn't able to get a credit card until I became a USAA member. Uh, They just verify military, not credit score. Meanwhile, I had a job since 14. I'm a college graduate with no student debt and good financial shape. And I tell you, I wanted to read that off because I think that really is important here. I think that's where the Ultra FICO could have a great 
um, effect or a great impact on helping people who just don't have established credit yet. Uh, and, and if it's something where you can bring in actual real behavior based on savings and checking, I mean, that's a great alternative. It's a great option to have, I think. And, and certainly, uh, I think Troy made a very good point there. And, and it sounds like uh, it sounds like someone like him would benefit from that. So, thanks, Troy. Uh, and then finally, from at BT Capital 12 uh, asks, can you guys comment on the lawsuit filed by Walmart against Synchrony? Do you think it's really just part of a bargaining strategy for the receivables, or is there more to this? Also, do you then think that COF, and I have to look that ticker up here real quick, but do you think Capital One? Capital One, there we go. Do you think Capital One is getting the short end of the stick? As they won the Walmart deal, folks. Remember, you can always uh, reach out to us via Twitter, and and these are just some great questions here. But what do you think you have? Uh, what, what what do you have there for uh, BT Capital here, Matt? Um, well, it's kind of like a he said, she said at this point. Um, Walmart's claiming that Synchrony didn't use great underwriting standards when approving people for their co-branded card, and it resulted in higher than expected losses and therefore lower income for Walmart than they were promised with the deal. So they're suing for $800 million to recoup whatever they feel they lost. Synchrony's claim is that this is just a baseless lawsuit. They use their same underwriting standards that they use for all of their store credit card products. And that Walmart is just trying to get out of paying market value for that loan portfolio, which they agreed to do if they broke the deal. So the outcome of this remains to be seen. I tend to think that Synchrony will be the winner. Um, I don't think Walmart's going to get $800 million out of them. They may end up settling at some point. But Synchrony, this goes beyond, I mean, their business goes beyond the Walmart partnership. I think at their growth rate, they'll they'll make up the lost revenue, and they're not terribly worried about the Walmart revenue. They just want to kind of put it behind them at this point, and the lawsuit's preventing them from doing that. Well, all right. Sounds good. I appreciate that, Matt. And I'm sure our listeners do too. Uh, all right. Let's wrap up the week here as we always do with one to watch. Uh, what is your one to watch this week, Matt? My, my, my one to watch is Synchrony. Um, actually, um, F, not only is it down about 10% after the lawsuit was announced, but I, as I mentioned before, I just love their high yield business model. It's a very efficient company. I had the chance to meet with their management team. I think they have great leadership. And there's a couple of really promising avenues they're taking their business. The Care Credit healthcare product has a lot of runway as more healthcare costs are being shifted to the consumer. They're starting to bundle a lot of their store card products together, like all of their different home card, home goods retailers. They're going to offer one credit card product that can be used across all of them. Same with auto parts. Um, so there's a lot of runway for growth here, I think. And as they're bringing in more and more retail deposits, their cost of capital is getting lower. And I just think it's a great time to get into this at a big discount. And hopefully I'll be able to shut up about Synchrony for a few days so I can buy some. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a reminder. We, we do have uh, trading guidelines we have to adhere to uh, here. So if we talk about it, we can't buy it. And if we buy it, we have to shut up about it for a while. And what's the ticker there for Synchrony, Matt? It is SYF. Okay. So I'm, if I don't mention Synchrony next week, that might be why. Yeah, yeah, that's always a good thing to remember. Um, you know, I was I was really I was trying to figure out did I want to get Berkshire Hathaway 
uh, as my one to watch, or, or Markel, because I just really love what both their quarters look like. I'm going to go ahead with Markel, uh, just because I I am really enthusiastic about where this company is headed. It's still a fairly small insurer, uh, but they're building this business in that Berkshire Hathaway model. And and it just is it's exciting from a number of different perspectives. I love the Markel's ventures side of the business. And uh again, I mean I think that Tom Gaynor really just is doing a lot of great things with with these guys. So Markel, ticker is MKL. I think that uh that one should be on probably everybody's radar here at this point. Uh, and hey, listen, folks, the other thing you need to have on your radar, why not go check out the Motley Fool's newly renovated YouTube channel, where you'll find clips from all of our podcasts in our entire Foolish family. Just go to youtube.com slash Fool and check it out. Dylan and his team have done a phenomenal job of putting together some really great content there. You get stuff from all the podcasts and more. It's just a, just a, an excellent experience there. Uh, Matt... Thanks again for joining us this week. This is a great show as always. I appreciate it. Always. I love being here. All right, folks. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This week, the show is produced by Ann Henry. And Ann, happy belated birthday. That's just great. You're you're taking it on, man. 30, it's got nothing on you, I promise. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.